And hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. My name's Tim, and this time we're going to be talking about the first story of season 4, The Smugglers, by Brian Hales. It sounds kind of weird saying the first story of season 4. I am joined, first of all, by a colorization artist who led the team on the first manual colorization of an entire black and white episode of Doctor Who. That's Dalek's Master Plan 2. Rich Tipple. Arr! <laughs> Hello, Tim. <laughs> Hello, Rich. Welcome. And you also restored lost and bleeding damaged color for the demons. And you've been on this before then. This is your second episode. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Yep, yep. That was uh, that was a really fun one. You went very easy on me. I, I feel like uh, I feel like this is going to be a completely different experience. Well, we'll see. But if we both dry and have nothing to say, we're also joined <laughs> once again by Splendid Brain Box, Doctor Who magazines, Reese Williams. Hello, Reese. Who are a vast me, <laughs> lily-livered land lovers? Oh, that's much better. Uh, Good evening. Good evening, lads. Good evening. That started a bit farmer. I wondered where you were going, but you pulled it out of the fire, so so well done. I have a couple of different careers. <laughs> Excellent. Reese. you've done astounding work since we last recorded, haven't you? Do you know what I'm going to talk about? I think I Reese do. Reese Williams has recovered. Recovered? Discovered. Discovered. Some uncovered? Genuine. Uncovered some genuine missing episodes footage, haven't you, Reese? I have indeed. The occasion was World Hippo Day, and prompted by that, your good self, Tim, asked me, do we know where this stock footage comes from, or what's going on in this telesnap, or something about the uh, the one telesnap of a hippo from the wheel in space. And right, gotcha. Because I couldn't answer that question, it made me actually start thinking about it and thinking where might they have sourced this footage from. And yeah. it suddenly seemed a really obvious idea that this could have come from a, a natural history unit documentary mm-hmm. of the time. And I checked what they had uh, available on iPlayer. And the first candidate that I looked for that was in around the right time period, <laughs> halfway through, was this extremely recognisable hippo moor parting and then... <laughs> closing and dancing with his fellow hippos yeah it was quite exciting you have found the only moving footage from the first episode of the wheel of space that we know about i think so wow yes. wow there we go. you've got your you've got your foot on the bottom rung of the ladder my name will live for eternity now and then somebody found some stock footage of the myth makers episode four didn't they in the same day? In the same week? It was the same week. I think it was the whole programme turned up on YouTube. It's called Travellers to Kurdistan. It's always existed uh, in the archive, but I guess hadn't been checked or it hadn't come to light or become available. But yeah, we I, th- I don't think we know the exact bit, but it's um, some travellers on horseback approaching the camera, I think would mm. kind of fit the bill for that scene. Were they inspired by your work, Finding the Hippo? I imagine so. And you were inspired by my tweet about World Hippo Day? Yes. So essentially what we're saying is I have uncovered two segments of missing episodes. That's exactly what 
we're saying and what the people will say hundreds of years down the line. They will write songs. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and who knows how many more millions of people will be out there hunting for missing episodes because of your podcast, Tim. Uh, it will be less than considerably <laughs> less than one million. <laughs> I know how many millions. And, and, and probably considerably less than one. <laughs> small army of people hunting down Marco Polo. This is what we needed. If we'd had this in the 1974, we wouldn't be in this mess. Uh, that's, we? that's very yeah. true. That's well, very true. Apolo- apologies for not starting podcasting five years before I was born. <laughs> uh, so, welcome both. Welcome back, both. Great to have you here. And you. we are here to talk about the first story of season four The Smugglers. So, to kick off, when we did The Savages, I said that both the savages and the smugglers are slippery in people's minds. People don't have a grip on what happened generally. People tend to think they're rather forgettable. And I've got some numbers here, guys. So when we did the savages, (laughs) I asked people, do you feel familiar with it? Or uh, as much as you might with other stories. And I asked people Mm. to be honest. Now, the savages resulted in... 23% 23% saying they'd never seen it, 36% saying they were familiar with it. It had a measure on the slipperyometer of 41%. So I did the same poll for the smugglers. Now, do you guys think that it was higher on the slipperyometer or lower on the slipperyometer? It's got to be higher. I, mm. I reckon higher. Well. The figures are these. We had a very similar number of votes, 360 this time versus about 380 last time or so. We had 26% fully familiar, 27% never seen or heard. On the slipperyometer, it registered 48%, a full 7% higher than the Savages. I'm slightly surprised, actually. I think the Savages is perhaps the one that we remember as being very slippery, and the smugglers is the one that we don't remember at all. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> Why do we think this is the slipperiest? It's very talky. I, I sort of feel like I what I remember about episode one is just the location stuff and how awesome that must have looked. And then mm. the rest of it, I just remember the set pieces. So there's like the... Um, the docks are being manipulative and the, the escape in episode two. We've got the action and, and some of that lovely recovered footage that we have in episode three, which is really exciting. Yeah. And then episode four, I just remember being a just ridiculous fight, <laughs> which doesn't always come across particularly well on audio. That's right. And in between these lovely set pieces, it's just a lot of sort of <laughs> pirate talk against <laughs> sort of quite contemporary London chat of the time. It's all a little bit jarring. Yeah, I I think there's a lack of stuff to latch onto. Um, no monster. No monster. There aren't even many interesting publicity photos, I don't think, you know, to represent this story. We've got that one great photo of Cherub holding Hartnell at knife point. But apart from that, there's not a lot of striking imagery that we can kind of feed our imaginations with, uh, at least imagery in good quality, you know, that would be published in magazines, things like that. And I also think it's perhaps the least innovative story from the Hartnell era. I don't think it does mm. an awful lot new. You know, 
and we've talked about this before, how the Hartnellier is just experimenting every week. Every serial is trying something new, something different, pushing the boundaries of what the show can be. And The Smugglers, it seems to almost rest on its laurels. And there's nothing, I think, remarkable about the story and the concept. Of itself, yeah. Yeah. Although, in a way, it's doing something that's not been done before. (laughs) And we'll talk about this later, but it's exploring genre history, Mm. which hasn't been done before. Uh, And and we'll unpick that a little bit as we go on. Uh, I think in a general sort of, in my naivety as a a fan some years ago, it was probably overshadowed by the 10th planet. Yeah, kind of tacked on at the start of season four. That's right, yeah. Stuff there right before uh, the big change. It's also Hartnell's last proper go at it, mm. isn't it? Mm. You know, he's obviously he's a guest a guest star in, in Tenth Planet. And, you know, he's not in half of it. Yeah. The Smugglers is his last proper episode as the Doctor, as, as far as it I'm is. And for concerned. And for that reason, as much as anything, it deserves some good scrutiny, which we'll, we'll give it. And it is remarkable. I mean, that's an immediate takeaway. The the gap in performance and capability between this and the 10th planet, which were recorded, what, seven weeks apart or something, mm-hmm. is highly noticeable. And so it is a bit of a last hurrah for the Hartnell Doctor. And we'll get into that as well. <laughs> Let's do our usual running order. We'll talk about the background. We'll talk about how it came about. We'll we'll talk a little bit about direction and production and stuff. And then we will have a look at some of the themes here. And we'll pick through the characters, rattle through those and the performances. And then we'll do a bit of a review, reveal our hands if we haven't done that already. And then we'll talk about the missing episodes aspects. So, the story goes, Innis Lloyd and Jerry Davis need a story, and they elect to explore the historical genre. They're not keen on on what's gone before. So, Brian Hales, who has been submitting storylines since Tosh was in post, has two live submissions. One of them is Doctor Who and the Nazis, and... He's asked to write, uh, uh, that's rejected, and he's asked to write a genre history and elects to go for a 17th century story about smuggling in Cornwall in line with Dr. Sin, according to some sources. And when we get to the themes, I'll talk about Dr. Sin a little bit and what that was about, and perhaps we'll talk about some other uh, influences on this genre as well. So, a a genre history about smuggling in Cornwall is commissioned by Hales, and they appoint Julia Smith as director. Now, she is the second female director to work on the show, the first one being... Paddy Russell. Paddy Russell, uh, on The Massacre. And she's appointed because she's apparently familiar with Cornwall, and... She's done lots of Dr. Finley episodes under her belt. Julia Smith, of course, went to, on to direct The Underwater Menace and years after that co-created EastEnders. 
and less successfully, El Dorado. <laughs> we don't talk about El Dorado. El Dorado backwards is Odoroddle, by the way. I don't know how I know that. <laughs> anyway, I say it looks like she does a good job with this. There are some interestingly composed shots. Uh, she often seems to put an object in the foreground of a shot and have the action go on yeah. behind it or to the side of it or kind of move away from it. In the camera script, there are quite a number of indications that foreground objects should be removed and or placed on a set during recording breaks. So that's definitely a conscious effort to bring that style I cheated a little bit and watched her episodes of The Underwater Menace just to see if I could get a sense of how she directs. And she seems to do some nice blocking of her actors, and especially in Underwater Menace 3, the scene in the market, there's a lot of camera movement following lots of people coming and toing and froing across the camera, and I think she would that shows she can handle the complex action sequences, you know, the fights with uh, aplomb. There were a few things uh, I noticed in the camera scripts. We've talked about having foreground objects within the shot, but also starting on something and then developing the shot away from it. Uh, this is something I really love when you see it in these old Studio VT programs. So there was one example where... Um, when the Doctor, Ben and Polly arrive at the graveyard, uh, we have a close-up of the tomb filling the frame and a hand pulling off moss, uh, and you pull back with the hand to a, a mid-close-up of Polly. There's another shot where you start on a plate as Ben pushes it away and then pan up to a two-shot. Uh, there's a scene where uh -huh. Pike is pouring a glass of wine in his cabin and you do a close-up on the goblet, rise with the goblet and then lengthen the shot to show Pike in the foreground and the door behind as people come in. You know, really nice mm. beginning-of-scene moments to kind of establish and draw you in. Mm. But there are some slightly disjointed moments, I think, in her episodes. Some bits in The Underwater Menace, I noticed. And I think it's because she makes... She plans to make a lot of edits in her episodes, scheduled recording breaks to allow cameras to move. Sometimes they do reverse angles. So as Longfoot is alone in the vestry and then suddenly sees Cherub, that was shot looking down from the steps. And then there's a recording break and you switch to a reverse angle. And there were a lot of those such instances where you have a, a sort of reverse angle of what you've just seen. There's an example of this. At the end of the Underwater Menace episode 2, Thaus says, there is your answer. Uh, and tr uh, the Doctor and Ramo turn to look off camera in the distance. And then there's a recording break and they used the same set, but all the actors repositioned to make it appear as though the set was 360 degrees and there was another set of doors on the other side. And so she's doing this to kind of immerse you in the sets. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, and in fact, cool. episode four has what I suspect, and I've looked in quite a lot of camera scripts, not all of them, I suspect the most planned recording breaks or, or edits in the show up to that point, there are 11 planned edits in episode four. A lot of those wow. are to adjust lighting because the scenes cut between the crypt, the dark crypt, and the graveyard outside. But 11 is a mammoth quantity of edits. And the price of a tape edit was about £50 per cut. 
legend also has it that, that she's on a mission in this probably is directed by Innes Lloyd who had a sympathetic relationship with Hartnell to look after the leading man and, and make things easy on him such as making him go for location shooting for one day versus the rest of them who were there for a week but yeah Hartnell was in ill health at this point and it's during this production that Hartnell the, the history is quite unclear, and I wonder whether David Brunt in his diaries will be able to unpick some of this when they're published. Mm. But the history is quite unclear as to precisely what precipitated Hartnell resigning or getting sacked. But it is during this production that Hartnell goes home and tells Heather that he's leaving. And indeed, Troughton is engaged by telephone and, and says no and then says yes during this production. And just while we're on the direction... I agree with you, Reese. I think some of the telesnaps look really nicely shot, mm. and that's due to the blocking. They're very yeah. nicely composed. There's some great shots of Cherub, which stand yes. out. And there is a shot, I remember. There's a great shot of Josiah Blake that shot through a ship's wheel, yes. which is on a post on the external set, but then taken into the studio as yeah. Blake arrives on scene. That's yeah. done on everybody's favourite camera the mole richardson certainly my favorite camera yeah. <laughs> reaching its full height there's another great shot uh, looking over cherub's shoulder down at the squire who's injured lying on the floor mm. uh, and it's a really great elevation and she's got a zoom on one of the cameras as well so that comes in handy for a couple of the cliffhangers and she's not afraid to go for close-ups as well which is always nice sure director having confidence in their actors it's also clear from the script that she paid attention to the the atmosphere of the show. In the scene uh, in the church vestry, there are cues in the script for electric lighting, and they match up with the sound effects of thunder. You would have seen a flash of lightning outside the window at the same time as the sound of thunder, Uh, and there are a couple of those throughout Ah. throughout that scene. Then when the, the Doctor and co arrive at the inn, there was rain coming down against the window, and that was real simulated rain within the studio. You can hear it. And then certainly in episode three, at least, I think in probably in all the scenes in the graveyard, the the backdrop of clouds is a moving back projection like you see in the Time Meddler. So all this stuff would have added to the sort of feeling of reality. So the rain, is that just a sound effect, or were they actually spraying no, the water onto the window? I think that's real water being chucked against the window. Because the characters come oh, in right. and are, are meant to be drenched, you know, to dry themselves out by the fire. Uh, and it's it's in the script and it's in the technical requirements. They ask for rain. Is this the point where we get to see Ben topless? Because a lot of people on Twitter are talking <laughs> about Ben being topless all the time. And uh, I would be remiss not to draw attention to it. I think I think by the amount of activity on Twitter, <laughs> I think we could do an entire episode on Ben being topless. But there you That's go. It. We've he covered got rained it. on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. That does yeah. sound brilliantly atmospheric, though, having lightning and flashes yeah. and the rain coming down. You know, it almost yeah. makes up for the lack of music, doesn't it? I bet that would have been really special. Mm. It's very Jamaica in. <laughs> Worth saying as well that the, the, the camera work on the location footage looks oh. superb. It looks so good. It looks high budget. It looks really well framed. You know, like in episode four, there's the shot of Blake arriving with, with the militia. Mm. 
and it looks like it could be a cast of hundreds, whereas you yeah. know in reality it's a cast of eight or or whatever it is. Yeah. And so for that reason alone, I think I, I think this is a, a well deserved recovery. Yeah. Just to see what that that location footage looks like. It's glorious. It must cut so lovely with the with the studio stuff as well, because you know you mentioned how glorious those sets were. I I'm obsessed with the churchyard. I would <laughs> love to see. That set, yeah. I just think it looks magnificent. And um, Reese, you mentioned stuff being put in the foreground. Mm. I think we see that one of the teleslaps. There's like a a lovely um, tombstone yes. just in the sort of yeah, bottom yeah. left of frame. And I can just sort of imagine the camera sort of creeping past that as they made their way towards the the church warden. So yeah, the, uh, you know when when you have the BBC at this time were unbelievable at building these mm. sorts of historical sets. They had, you know, a lot. They had a, a, a tradition at that point of of building them, and they look fantastic in in the episodes mm. of other serials that we do have. So, you know, we know what they're capable of, and I think that partnered with the location footage, absolutely glorious to watch. It must be a, must be visually really impressive. So, credit for the camera work goes to Jimmy Court, apparently. So, I'd be interested to check out more of his work. And the design is by Richard Hunt. And what else did he do? He did Galaxy 4 and some of the Mission to the Unknown. Uh, and mm. he did the Invasion later on. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, he's quite an interesting character. There's only one interview with him that I found conducted by the Loose Cannon team. And he he seems very embarrassed and kind of reticent to to talk about his design work. He he cringed at being reminded of the Chumblies in particular, but he did say that he thought that The Smugglers was, was a good production. Oh, great. But he seemed more interested in flogging his book, which was called To End Poverty, The Starvation of Periphery by the Core. Uh, and he said that was his sole focus in life after leaving the BBC, was writing this book and making making the book known and changing the world with his book all about his political ideas it sounds less worthy than chumbley's to be honest I mean, <laughs> they're lovely just on the just again on the on the location work i love that shot of the tardis mid mm. dematerialization framed by the the cave not only is it obviously a good example of the bbc's bread and butter period historical mm. sets there's also what i'd call good technical design in there so on certain sets, you have incorporated into them swingers, flippers, traps, which are all kind of elements which can be moved to allow more space for cameras to point into and move about a set. So a trap would be a little hole through which a camera can point. A flipper would be like a, a swinging door. Uh, a swinger would be the entire wall can be pulled back. And by having those and during recording breaks, moving them about, you allow the sets to seem more immersive and that gives more opportunity for the director. Uh, and there's evidence that there was a lot of that in The Smugglers. Is that by dint of the director or the designer? or I'd imagine a combination of both. There might be discussions between the director and the designer mm. over what they want from a set and given a preliminary design, the director might be, well, I'd like to get my camera in here and they'd say, okay, we can put a trap in there. I don't know exactly how it would play out. There's also, in this story, opportunity for interesting mechanisms. You know, a hidden passageway. Uh, the tomb mm. containing the uh, squire's cachet of goods. 
uh, which mm-hmm. he, I think he twists an ornament on the top, which unlocks the lid, and then he can slide that. And there's the trapdoor to Avery's treasure, which Michael Craze fell down during rehearsals. Oh, right. <laughs> when it was unsecured. I was trying to work out where that would be on the set, because obviously that is the sort of cross-sectional point between all the names on the walls. Uh, and I yeah. think it must have been quite near to the door to the hidden passageway because that is built up on steps. And obviously the studio floor is concrete. You can't make a hole in it. So the trap door would have to be kind of up on rostra. Mm. Uh, so I think yeah. that would have been quite close to there. Poor old Michael Craze because he gets injured in the 10th planet as well, doesn't he? Somewhat more seriously. He doesn't have a happy time of it. Yeah. Some more good technical design. I believe that Pike's cabin, the interior, was actually built on rostra, which were placed on top of springs, like car springs, so that it could rock and move to simulate the motion of the sea. That set looks Oh, it's fantastic. gorgeous. Sort of wood panelling. The, the bay window, the galleon window at the back of that, at its inverted angle, mm. uh, it just looks lovely. It looks really good. Really yep. accomplished piece of design. I think that's that's kind of the biggest compliment you can give the design work on this story is that it just all looks totally convincing. And by dint of that, there's almost less to say about it because there's nothing to pick at. It looks great. Yeah. It's so strange then for a production that has such fantastic location work, beautiful sets, actors giving it their all, that there is no incidental music. <laughs> what, what, yeah what's what, that about what what an oversight like what what i'd love to know that i mean there must have been a thought behind that decision surely like how, how did they come to that you think that it's a genre crying out for a bit of stock melodramatic hmm. horse riding music or something <laughs> because a lot of the location footage comprises people leaving that building to get in a horse and ride <laughs> off um <laughs> there's a lovely moment early on in episode two where the doctor's being threatened by cherub um, and it says something you know what'll it be doctor loosen your tongue or lose it and it's delivered so well that you can in my head, I can see the Hartnell reaction shot as he sort of looks back defiantly. And it just desperately needs that music crescendo, that sting, just to move us on to the next scene. Like, it's just so strange because it's such a great moment that falls completely flat because there's just a second of silence and then we're on to the next bit. And it just feels like it's it, something's lacking because of that. Yeah. It could have been a lot more impactful. I agree. It could be a, a deliberate directorial decision. There's not an awful lot of incidental music in The Underwater Menace. Obviously there is some, but often scenes are just played out with some atmospherics or background, like chanting, uh, murmuring, rather than, you know, playing stings. I can't think off the top of my head of a sort of sting in the underwater menace Mm. is this potentially um julia smith's background in soaps did she not particularly did she think it was more gritty and realistic good point it might might undermine the tone if you're using sort of melodramatic stop music as we described and there might not have been the budget for specially composed music or even not the budget for stock music I was just about to raise that as a possibility because what we haven't mentioned, we've alluded to it, is that this is the last production Mm. of season three and it was held over. There's another problem with not having any incidental music in that when I come to edit this, 
I'm going to have to use generic pirate haring <laughs> or Reese's Uar at the start. They'll or Captain Pugwash or something. <laughs> Pay royalties on that. Before we move on, can we talk about the boat? I was hoping you'd talk about the boat, Reese. So, the boat in fiction, the Black Albatross, was in reality named the Bonnie Mary. Uh, it was a 50 foot wooden fishing vessel owned by a fisherman named Donald Turtle. Um, <laughs> he left the Merchant awesome. Navy, bought the boat, and converted it for fishing. And they hired this boat from him and built up a small section of scenery uh, on one side of the boat to represent the kind of steps and a doorway of the Black Albatross. And it's a really limited set, but with camera angles and sort of pointing the camera off into the distance, just showing the, the rigging or the side of the uh, the steps. I think they do quite a good job. There's a colour photo, isn't there? Mm. That? That's really cool. But it adds a lavishness, doesn't it? It adds a lavishness to the look of the oh, production yeah. and makes it, again, look more expensive than it, than it evidently was. The location stuff, is all it's all totally real. It's not a fabrication. Mm. They're in Cornwall. They're on a boat out on the sea, or at least in a harbour, because uh, none of the production crew could stand the motion of the ocean. Oh, right. <laughs> they were all spewing over the sides... Julia Smith, legend goes, hurled over the side of the boat and then turned around and immediately shouted, action. Uh, yeah, sounds <laughs> like the casting crew had a horrible time. Uh, and after after they'd finished, they offered the owner of the boat the scenery. They offered to give him the scenery that had been put on the boat in exchange for his fee, which he refused you <laughs> wanted to get paid they were obviously getting into the theme of piracy a bit much, <laughs> maybe if he'd accepted that they could have afforded music maybe that was the payoff yeah, yeah maybe so and yeah. do you want to know where the Bonnie Mary is now at the bottom of the deep blue sea it was scrapped he eventually sold the Bonnie Mary to get a bigger boat and the Bonnie Mary was broken up by its new owner in return for decommissioning money. Cultural vandalism. Yep. I think the last thing I want to touch on is, because this one's missing, episodes one to three are really coherent on the audio and you get a real sense of, a, of the storyline and what's going on. But episode four, I struggled with somewhat because there's just so much action going on. Um, Reese, you've been looking at that. There's a lot of dialogueless action, including yeah. stuff with the, the mute pirate Spaniard, <laughs> where, yeah. you know, it's it seems that there's quite a bit of business going on in that scene, some fun pirate action, which maybe the story is a bit lacking otherwise, but unfortunately, a lot of that is, yes, done in silence to us, but that, I hope, could have been quite interesting. But the fighting... I was really curious to see how this played out. So based on the camera directions, I've come up with the following. So when Pike and Cherub are fighting, they're moving all around the crypt. Cherub, who is about to shoot Pike, uh, is anticipated by Pike. He suspects it and is ready to, to knock the gun out of his hand. Uh, and they then duel with cutlasses. Um, but according to yeah. the 
Stage directions, Pike is beginning to assert his superior strength and skill. Cherub's on the defensive, trying to look for a way out, uh, but Pike's always trying to block him from reaching the stairs. Pike knocks Cherub's sword from his hands, but Cherub is then able to retrieve the pistol, which he fires but misses. Cherub tries yep. to aim at Pike with his dagger, but he can't get a clear shot because Pike is dodging in behind the pillars. Cherub loses track of him, and then we see him peeking around a pillar and we get a point-of-view shot from Cherub's eyeline panning around the set to show what seems to be a clear path to the stairs. So Cherub breaks for the exit, but then Pike appears from behind a tomb. Cherub throws his dagger, misses, as Pike leaps off the tomb and advances on Cherub. Uh, he backs up, then he's pinned against a statue of an angel, and Pike runs him through with his sword, and Cherub falls to the floor dead and we see that in the sensor clips which we'll be talking about a little bit later there's a lot going on yeah. there do you think do you is your instinct that that would have worked it's difficult to tell but you know there's clearly thought put into this sequence it's not just sure people fighting and going back and forth and i think that there would have been cutaways to whatever the doctor and blake and ben and polly were doing at those moments so i th i'm yeah. encouraged by having uh, explored that and yeah later on i bet the gallery was stressful <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah a lot going on yeah and this this isn't necessarily backed up by the camera directions later on but the stage directions say that as the the militia men are fighting the pirates and they are pushed down into the the crypt while that's going on around him, the stage directions say that Pike is frantically trying to gather and remove what he can of the treasure. So that's why he's sort of shouting, you know, fight men. Um, he's busy with the treasure, desperately trying to retrieve mm. it. Um, and while that's going on, the doctor is at the entrance to the tunnel, uh, but he can't work out how to open it. Which, which is quite fun because in the previous episode when Ben's showing him the tunnel really excited the Doctor's like yes 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 you can close it up again now showing no interest and the Doctor's becoming slightly desperate then feels the door move and is sort of flung aside as Blake and his men surge through brilliant also we apparently see uh, Gaptooth running past the camera at one point Gaptooth the old pirate and he runs over to the treasure but he's killed for his greed going for Avery's gold um, and then Pike fights ably, seemingly invulnerable, making his way towards the Doctor. Uh, and the directions say that the Doctor scrambles towards Cooper's body, trying and failing to reach his pistol, which could have been quite shocking to see the uh, the Doctor wielding a gun. Um, he knew he was on the way out. His old body was wearing a bit thin, so he thought <laughs> he thought they'll be looking for the wrong guy if uh, if this gets out. <laughs> and then as Pike raises his arm to deliver a fatal blow to the helpless doctor the squire pushes himself to his feet grabs Pike's arm Blake aims his pistol and fires and then Pike mortally wounded stumbles towards the treasure falls prone uh, with one hand still clutching at the cursed gold so I think Brilliant. that that would have been quite satisfying I do hope so it doesn't sound great. <laughs> I, I take it you mean sound great on audio rather than my description doesn't sound great. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> sure, yeah. whatever you say. Yeah, whatever you say. No, Rich, your, descriptions, your descriptions breathe life into what is a discordant and messy audio.
That's no way to talk about your podcast, Tim. (laughs) (laughs) So let's explore a little bit the theme here. It's a genre historical. They've gone for Cornwall, which is famous for being smuggler country with its vast area and long coastlines. That's not enough, though. Smuggling isn't enough, so they throw in some pirates, which is fine. (laughs) You know, we end up with a smugglers versus pirates fight. That's fine. (laughs) Thematically, there's no pretense of education here for the first time. Every single historical beforehand has had, with the exception of the gunfighters, (laughs) <laughs> has had a, a pretense of education, uh, either going through something that might have been learnt in school at the time, or more niche stuff such as persecution of the Huguenots. Mm-hmm. And here, we've got nothing. It is a purely fictionalised setting, apart from the mention of Captain Avery. Mm-hmm. So, Captain Avery was the best-known pirate in the late 1600s. And the thing about Avery is that he disappeared with his treasure, and he was last spotted in Ireland and is presumed to have lived out his days under a nom de plume, which which has meant rich pickings for writers of fiction. We'll get it out of the way. This, the smugglers, accidentally is related (laughs) to the curse of the black spot with Matt Smith in that The Curse of the Black Spot involves the disappearance of Avery. However, his treasure is abandoned in the middle of whichever becalmed sea they were in in the West Indies. Uh, this story deals with Avery, Avery's treasure having made it to Cornwall. So, big finish. Fill your boots if you haven't already. Get that treasure on his ship from becalmed waters <laughs> in the West Indies to a church in the middle of Cornwall. Give the people what they want. Indeed. So, what are the influences here? Well, a couple of sources say the major influence would have been Dr. Sin. So, Dr. Sin is a series of books by Russell Thorndike. You may know the name Thorndike. Russell Thorndike had a much more famous actress, Sister Sybil. So, Dr. Sin was uh, made into a film in the 1930s, but perhaps more crucially, it had been made into a Disney TV movie, which also had theatrical releases called The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, which got re-edited and got called Dr. Sin, The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, and that was in 1963. Now, there was a clash of rights ownerships, and there were two parties trying to make a film (laughs) around Dr. Sin. So, Hammer made a film which was called Captain Clegg, which was also a a name of Dr. Sin when he was a pirate uh, (laughs) in 62. So in the zeitgeist, there is this Dr. Sin thing. Hmm. Dr. Sin, I think, was a clergyman, then a pirate, and then returned to being a clergyman who had an alter ego slash Robin Hood type (laughs) alter ego, (laughs) the Scarecrow. (laughs) <laughs> who would kind of smuggle from the rich and give to the poor. Uh, the 1963 film, he's played by Patrick McGowan, and it's 
highly entertaining for that alone. But Dr. Sin is based in Kent, Romney Marsh, uh, and involves smuggling from France. So Hales could have read the books. Mm. They could have wanted to cash in on the 62 and 63 films, and there was a bit of a kick around about it. I will just interject and say that I looked around for um, a direct quote from either Hales or Davis referencing Mm. Dr. Sin, because it it is often said the story was commissioned to be in the mould of Dr. Sin. But I think that's perhaps an inference fans have made in writing about the smugglers later on and drawing parallels, because I couldn't find anything directly from either of them about that. Hales didn't mention it in his one interview, I think, that we have with him. But he says that Davis came to him asking for a historical and he, Hales, picked Cornwall, 17th century. But there is certainly are parallels. Sure. But this is Kent, 19th century. Mm. So the smuggling thing is the yeah. thing. And the feel is right. And Dr. Sin is also a vicar mm. with a history of piracy. So that exists into the smugglers. But everything about smuggling has vicars with a history of piracy. <laughs> including Jamaica Inn. So, Reese, you pointed out Jamaica Inn in, in discussions prior, didn't you? Where was that referenced? I think it was Johnny Morris on Twitter. Oh, he's a clever bloke, Johnny Morris. So, Jamaica Inn is a novel written by Daphne du Maurier in the early 20th century, which again involves a vicar who is, in fact, the head of a ring of smugglers very much set in Cornwall and based loosely around the real Jamaica Inn on Bodmin Moor, which was a kind of smuggler's way station. But in 1939, Hitchcock produces a film. It's the last of Hitchcock's British-made films. It's quite lowly regarded, but uh, at the time, I think that was from a US audience who, who were reviewing a very heavily reduced uh, film with eight minutes taken out of it. But uh, the film stars Robert Newton and Charles Lawton. Now, Charles Lawton is a bit of an egotist, and Charles Lawton plays the squire. And the squire is this sort of grotesque dandy who, prematurely in the piece, is revealed to be the smuggler chief. And that's a rewrite from the vicar being in charge of the smugglers. So... There is a definitely a direct lift there. Hales is smugglers. We have a grotesque dandy of a squire mm. who prematurely is revealed to be <laughs> uh, the, the, the chief smuggler, as it were. So there we have it. I think Johnny Morris is absolutely on the money there. So much of this is lifted from Jamaica Inn, which has location footage shot in Cornwall and has more of the elements that are exploited here. Does Is Jamaica in say a specific time? There's the rub. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jamaica Inn is also set in the early 19th century, in the early 1800s, as is Dr. Sin. And the Smugglers is set in the 1600s to tie in with Avery. But smuggling in Cornwall was at its peak in the mid-1700s to 1800 because of the taxation policies of George III. I mean, I live right by the sea um, and my local chippy is called The Smugglers and my local pub is The Smugglers Rest. (laughs) And there is 
never any dates put to any smuggling. It's just, oh yeah, there's certain caves there that people used to use for smuggling. And, you know, it just paints a picture, doesn't it? I don't think really you need to go into any more detail than that. And the, the taxation policies were so severe, the import taxes were so severe that smuggled goods could be bought for about a fifth of the price of the legitimately imported goods. So that is why it's such it was such a big criminal industry because of the severity of the import taxes. The other aspect of smuggling which is covered in Jamaica Inn but isn't included here is wrecking. Mm. Where people would hang around a rocky coastline and shine lights at ships at sea and try and lure them onto the rocks and then in Jamaica Inn the smugglers would jump onto the ship kill all the occupants so there were no witnesses and then steal their goodies so there we are that's a bit about the what was around at the time and a bit about smuggling we've got a lovely riddle here as well haven't we which we need to discuss because that causes some confusion we have we have there's the common misconception that it was hartnell that got the riddle wrong yeah but we all know um, our bill doesn't make mistakes. Um, and if you check the scripts, Hartnell actually got it right every single time. And it was fluffed by Terence Damani, who was playing the church warden. Yeah. So you got him. Well done, Bill. Nailed it again. Yeah. I mean, we'll get on to the characters and performances in a bit. But <laughs> <laughs> So Longfoot is definitely reaching for his line when he does that, isn't he? He's definitely looking for divine inspiration because he says, small wood. Ringwood Gurney. So, yeah, he's struggling. But the correct version is small beer, Ringwood Gurney, which Bill Hartnell absolutely nails good on him. Yeah, but that's a bit of genre treasury stuff, isn't it? I don't know where treasure riddles come from, but (laughs) but that feels like it should be there. They end up being four names so that they form a cross, so that X marks the spot. It's a little bit contrived that Hartnell is saying, oh, I think I think there, there really should be four names um, when <laughs> yeah. three three points is enough to triangulate. And and Polly mentioned small beer moments before. Yes. Upstairs as well. And then he suddenly Which thinks that weird. they should be looking in the crypt. Yeah. Yeah. Hartnell seems to have a little too much divine knowledge in this story. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the titles, because there's, a, there's a, a rather special thing that happens in episode one, isn't there? Yeah, it's really strange. So um, you've got the sort of weird black text. We don't think we ever see a, an overlay um, of a episode title with anything other than white text. I could well, say. Space Pirates is the only other one. Story about pirates, penultimate story of that doctor, and, oh. listen to this, <laughs> oh, Julia Smith's most famous directorial work, The Railway Children, Stars Bernard Cribbins, uh, Jenny Agutter, and Milo Clancy. <laughs> You're not going to make this about the Space Pirates, right? <laughs> Damn it. It's just a bit odd to go from the title sequence to that lovely shot of the TARDIS in Bedford mm. Square. Uh, from the war machines and then it appears to go back to the titles again it's not we're actually going back i believe to a scanner shot inside the tardis but obviously it's playing the sort of the the howl around titles Mm. again which is obviously very bright so they need the uh, caption to be in black so it's it's all a bit strange when they could have just kept that beautiful shot of bedford 
square a bit longer and put the smugglers over the top of it or indeed kind of waited until they're inside the TARDIS and done it then. I think it's meant to suggest the kind of travelling through time in the same way that in An Unearthly Child sort of superimposed it on top of the characters in the TARDIS as it takes off and that recurs again later in the episode when the same type of footage uh, according to the camera script is seen on the TARDIS scanner before the clouds so-called disappear and we see the the beach so I think that's probably the intention it does have this continued sort of soft reboot feel Mm. about it doesn't it because we had that in the war machines where we're finding out that Doctor Who can (laughs) walk into a place and knows everyone involved with computers and here we know that well let's let's see how Doctor Who time travels and so they have to show the process mm. of going through through space. I find it rather exhilarating, actually, uh, having this reboot. And I think going on that journey with Ben and Polly, which, you know, we'll cover the characters, but mm. going on that journey with Ben and Polly as they have their, their eyes opened to what yeah. they're up to and having the knowing Doctor enjoy that, I think it's refreshing. Mm. And I think, yeah, it's good for having a soft reboot here. But it does have that naivety about it, which I enjoy. You're definitely on the money there. It it is a soft relaunch. Obviously, it was created in the last production block, but as far as the audience are concerned, there's been a three-month break. Yeah. Um, So it seems a natural time to sort of re-establish the show's sort of core tenants, I think. Um, I read a wonderful piece by Simon Guerrier, where I think it was on his blog, and he mentioned um, the production team making a fresh start, and he's absolutely right. It even got a little bit of uh, new season marketing, if you can call it that. I think the Radio Times mm. ran an article on it um, a day before it was aired, and it was, uh, it was the topic of debate on junior points of view as well. Potentially just to kind of let people know that it was not going to be 5.15, but 5.50 from now on. And of course, it had a lot of competition on the other channels. Which So it moved time slot. Oh, interesting, because... I've speculated before that they produced a glossy trailer for the Celestial Toymaker when it moved time slot. I could be wrong, but I think it was the first to air at 5.50. Right. And I think that it was sort of getting it in the Radio Times was a little bit of an attempt to get a little bit of interest going because ITV had put, I think, Weaver's Green on ATV, but most of the regions were showing Opportunity Knocks. So it had a, you know, it had a fight on its hand for for eyeballs um Interesting. and yeah i think that's yeah. sort of reflected in the terrible viewing figures but yeah yeah the, the first scene is really interesting how they absolutely rattle through the kind of core elements of the show the doctor says this is the tardis travels through time and space i can't control it and it's the doctor being his most candid and frank and open about his kind of shortcomings and i think that's because this is the first time there has not been a hangover companion from the previous era. He's the only person there who can deliver this exposition, so he's got to uh, come clean about that. But it wastes no time in just ticking those boxes and then crashing straight into the adventure. It's really handy shorthand, and and we see that again later on when Polly talks about the Doctor being jolly good at getting getting out Mm. of trouble. And Ben saying um, the Doctor wouldn't cheat no one, <laughs> and I think like chronologically they've probably known him a few hours since, <laughs> since leaving London at the end of the War Machines. But yeah, do you know what I mean? It's 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 a way, isn't it, of getting these things across yeah. to to the viewer and, and straightforward as possible. We've got new contemporary com- 
companions um, disbelieving that they've actually even travelled back in time. Sure. And it all, maybe to us who have kind of seen it all on 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 DVD and Blu-ray and VHS and um, whatever else, it feels potentially a little familiar. Mm. But to new viewers at the time, it's a pretty good jumping-off point. Yeah. Mm. And you'd probably relate to Ben spending all of episode one not really believing that they've travelled back in time, even if it does get a little bit tiresome. But yeah, you're seeing, I think, you're seeing it through his lens, which is Yeah, useful. I love how annoyed he is. Just He's just been inconvenienced. He's not awed at this idea of what's happened to him. The great distance he's travelled, even if he hasn't travelled through time. It's just, <laughs> he needs to get back to his ship. Yeah, I, I love the, uh, the line where... Uh, He's talking about the churches and the doctor says, oh, most of those churches have been standing for centuries. And he said, yeah, so have we here. Come on. <laughs> it's great. I do love that. There's something in this about the um, the contemporary language sort of coming up against mm. and contrasting against the pirate speak. It really is. It really is quite <laughs> nice. Good. So just before we wrap up this theme area i have i have read i think it was tat wood who suggested i don't know on what basis that the genre historical was visited because they were eyeing up overseas sales and potentially the u.s so they were trying to create a brand of historical that would be acceptable in the light of things like dr sin but it obviously doesn't work and it's something that was quickly abandoned because they attempt another genre historical in a few weeks mm. and then abandon it yeah well it's strange because um jerry davis had said that he enjoyed the historical stories you know he liked doing them and mm. in his lloyd by his own admission didn't like science fiction but they felt what <laughs> <laughs> so it's odd that they in the wrong they job, were the ones who who killed off the historical stories but i think it was partly just down to the viewing figures and they felt that the stories didn't weren't received as well and davis kind of felt he said that the the brand of doctor who is the science fiction if you wanted historical stories you could watch the classic serials it's like they're really pulling a tight focus on what the show is or what it should be and it's kind of the opposite of the sprawling expansive hartnell era where it explored so many mm. things they're saying this is what this show does and we're going to do it and we're going to do it well. I just find it weird that um, it's, Lloyd is just not someone I associate with historicals <laughs> at all. I'm almost glad he didn't waste too much of his tenure doing them. I know we've mm. got um, we've got this, we've got the Highlanders and stuff, yeah. but he's the cyber <laughs> guy, he's the ice warriors on Mars, Yeti on the underground, yeah. you know. It's, it's a, a slow yeah. burner about a smuggling ring with basically no wider repercussions to history or indeed the future of yeah. mankind it just feels a little mm. bit out of character. Yeah, well, he did say that he didn't like science fiction, but he also didn't like the historicals. He felt they didn't didn't work. Uh, and coming back to what you said earlier, Tim, Ennis Lloyd, he said he didn't see how they could be educational except as education about good and evil. Right. So that's a real divergence from the kind of origin of the show. Well, he probably didn't like Doctor Who very much. He didn't <laughs> stick around for, the, for all that long, did he? And, and when we get to where they think it should be, they're not involved anymore. Mm. Well, I, I lament the loss of the historicals, mm. but but regular listeners uh, may be aware of that. Oh, I'm with you, Tim. I think the historicals are brilliant, and I think Hartnell shines when he's in a historical as well. I think they're absolutely superb. (laughs) 
Let's move on to characters and performances. First up, the Doctor. I really didn't notice Hartnell putting much of a foot wrong in this. There's one fluff in episode three where he's trying to say a word and he has two goes at it and he just walks off. <laughs> I know exactly the line you mean. And I listened to that and I thought, oh, he's just given up on that line. But he actually kind of starts it wrong and then says it right. Oh, does this he? is kind of <laughs> with a, a lot of Hartnell fluffs. You know, um, the famous, um, I prefer walking to any day and I hate climbing. Uh, he's kind of, if you look at the actual scripted line, that's he's kind of skipped one bit of the line and he's kind of remembered that bit and tacked it on at the end. And that's kind of why it, yeah. it feels clumsy. You know, he said any day instead of I prefer walking anyway. Sure. And he's hard. And I don't want to uh, dig up old graves, but <laughs> he doesn't say I am not a dog in the Myth Makers. <laughs> He starts to say, I am not a doc, yeah. because he's just addressed as doctor. Anyway, I think it's a genuinely great performance, mm. uh, certainly on the audio. I think he's very polished with it. I think he's very confident. I think there are some set pieces, which Rich has alluded to, where he absolutely nails it. The The tarot card ruse, you know, to try and hoodwink Jamaica... I think it's superb. I think it's it's well. We we'll get on to Jamaica, but mm. uh, you know, I think the execution of that and the delivery of the dialogue is great. That tarot card scene is quite interesting in the staging because they had a duplicate table in order to show close-ups of the cards, and moving the cards about was Albert Ward, who had previously been Hartnell's hand double in the Celestial Toymaker. <laughs> that's, that is so amazing. he was the the go-to man for hands but also in that episode <laughs> that is brilliant. gordon craig doubles for hartnell in the film sequences so that episode yeah. has three actors playing the role of the doctor <laughs> fantastic i mean if that's not a reason enough to want this story back Oh, Hartnell is just magical in this. I, he's just at his manipulative best, which I think is when the first Doctor is just electric. I think in episode two, within one scene, he's gone from being threatened with all manner of ghastly things and with <laughs> a few very mock platitudes towards Captain Pike, mm. praising him as a gentleman and appealing to his intellect. He negotiates himself into position as an equal. And from there, he starts to negotiate uh, a cut of the loot in order to pass on his information. It's so wonderfully scripted and it's so beautifully done by Hartnell. Um, and it's mm. just a wonderful beat that shows how masterfully manipulative and cunning the Doctor is. And it's so in character. And it's, you know, we don't get this in the Tenth Planet. And it is, it's, it's Hartnell doing the first doctor really for the, for the last time for me it's it's got it all it's it's the perfect i think he's particularly good in the uh, the location work in episode 1 as well he's just sparkling i think it's brilliant i love when he say i can i can foresee oodles of trouble it's those kind of <laughs> proclamations by the doctor he says in marco polo he says great olympus that kind of <laughs> charming slightly old worldy but warm characterization yeah. uh and there's a wonderful photo of Hartnell on location he's sort of got one leg up standing on a rock looking out outside the frame and his cloak is swaying behind him the wind is in his hair 
and it was a photo he owned personally. On the back of the photo, he wrote this. Cornwall, I'm looking out at the beauty God made. The colour and sound brings only the feeling of happiness into my heart and soul. Doctor Who, 1966. That's amazing. Uh, I was just going to say, talking of Smith's direction, looking at the telesnaps, there's an awful lot of close-ups, which I imagine Hartner would have absolutely revelled in. Now you can never you can never quite tell because presumably the telly snaps were made to sell to to actors, um, so you want to get a nice clip close up of them. But there's enough in here that it, it clearly is a directorial decision. It's interesting you say that about selling telly snaps to actors because somebody told me that Elroy Josephs had commissioned telly snaps for his episodes, or that he had somehow paid for additional coverage because he's featured quite a lot more than you would expect for what is a fairly minor character um, in those telesnaps. There are a lot of him in the telesnaps. And in fact, during the credits, his name is telesnapped, which is very rare. I've seen probably two or three other examples of an actor's name being telesnapped in the credits. Normally the producer and the director, John Cura, was always on top of that. But it's very unusual to see an actor's name telesnapped, which does make me wonder whether there is some truth to that story that he somehow requested sort of coverage. But I don't think there's any evidence. Very interesting. Uh, Just concluding on on the Doctor, I will say I do worry about... Well, we have the clip where Cooper is shot and Hartnell is doing something weird. (laughs) And I do worry about the scene where he pops in Longfoot's dislocated finger. I I worry what that will look like and what the execution will look like. But he's brilliant in it. Do, do we have anything more to say about Ben and Polly? Uh, I will point out that, that Polly is uh, presents as a boy with the cunning use of trousers <laughs> which compromises her entire male disguise uh, because uh, only a male would wear trousers. I was going to say something about the uh, language, the contemporary language being a kind of fun contrast to the pirate speak. That's particularly noticeable in episode two, and Ben has some great dialogue um, in a scene with a revenue man. And he says, pull the other one, it rings. <laughs> to which the bemused revenue man replies, what say you? <laughs> I'll forget yeah. it says Ben. And it's just it's just wonderfully contemporary feel and we're seeing Ben as an actual character, mm. which is quite nice because I feel like obviously he spent all of episode one not really believing that they'd travelled back in time. Um and in episode two he's in he's in full flight. And in fact it's um Ben who is the I think uh, again Simon Gary mentioned on his on his blog it's Ben that's the damsel in distress that needs rescuing and is knocked unconscious. And and Polly has far more to do in this story which certainly is in the first great. half for mm. sure uh, and ben has a little bit more to do yeah. later but yeah i noted that uh, polly has to take the lead at the end of episode one doesn't she mm. i i love ben in this i think he's my favorite part of it he's just so yeah. uh chipper all the way through indeed i mean i i, I remain unconvinced that he's perfectly au fait with them traveling hundreds of miles to Cornwall like that, but isn't alerted to the lack of tarmac roads, electricity, and whatever else, you know, lampposts, overhead flights, whatever that would be in the 1960s setting. Mm. But 
honestly, they bring such a freshness to it for me. It's the sort of freshness I enjoy with Vicky. Yeah. A lightheartedness and, and just a real fresh and breezy approach to it. And they get on tremendously well mm. together. They bounce off each other really well. And yeah, it's just refreshing and fresh. And they've both got lots to do. Do they miss a trick by not getting Ben involved in any seafaring action? Here we've got a sailor. Doesn't go near the water. <laughs> there's some nice banter about getting back to the Navy. <laughs> and does Polly say he's being too fussy or something that he can get on a ship in the 17th century, yeah. but not the 20th? <laughs> I hear what you say about the um, their kind of wide-eyed enthusiasm uh, being a breath of fresh air, but I do think it results in a bit of a tonal clash with some of the real grimness that's going on in this story, some of the brutality. Yeah, it's a kind of tonal whiplash whereby at the end of episode one, Polly is kind of hysteric saying, you know, we've got to, these people have kidnapped the doctor, Ben's been injured, someone's been murdered. And then when they're locked up in the jail cell at the start of the next episode, she's going, this is great, Ben, you've got no imagination. Isn't this fun kind of thing? <laughs> and then later on, at the end of episode four, you know, these pirates have just been killed in front of Polly in the tunnels and... You know, Ben's been witnessing all these um, people fighting to their deaths in the crypt and they come back into the TARDIS and Polly's all, oh, well, where where are we going next kind of thing? And it's, <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost them being self-aware that they're in an, a continuing adventure serial. Yeah. That, I have a little bit of a problem with that. Not too much because it is enjoyable. Sure. You're saying that Polly gets a good amount to do in this story and fulfills the um, heroic role but uh, in episode two in the jail cell where she's frightened of the rat uh, and then that's brought up again when she's going to get some straw and then she says oh no the rat's down there can you get me the straw Uh, that wasn't the line (laughs) as scripted as scripted she just asked Ben to get her some straw so that's something that presumably the actors have have added in right which ties into something Annika Wills said once in an interview that she deliberately played Polly as a kind of contrast to the the macho heroines, your um, Kathy Gales, your uh, Emma Peels from the Avengers. Your dodos. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one dodo. So we'll rattle through the rest of the cast and see if we've got any observations about them. David Blake Kelly playing Jacob Cooper. Uh, there's not a lot to say. There's a, there's a nice moment at the start of episode three when um, uh, the doctor d- distracts Jamaica and, and Cooper bashes him on the head and allows them to escape yeah. a la the Romans. Uh, I guess Cooper's just sort of being used as some sort of muscle then, which allows them to, to get away. And then he makes his triumphant return to meet Ben and Polly, where he inexplicably knew that they'd be at the stage <laughs> that was quite nice um and then you get you know there's some nice threats from cooper that you know that's it we're even now which i think feels right feels sort of believable i can see his motivation in that so he's not a complete cardboard cut out of a character there is some motivation going on there which i like he's quite slippery isn't he mm. in the- you can't pigeonhole him as to an allegiance. And it felt to me a little bit like that was in service of getting to the end and getting all the moving parts in their places. 
But um, I was quite relieved as well when he started having things to do because at the start he's quite quiet and he's just a sort of barkeep. Uh, and so when he gets more to do, I found that quite quite rewarding. He was in the chase as well, wasn't he? David Blake Kelly jumping off the He played the ship. captain. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he was also in the Treasure Island film from the 1950s, I think, the one in which the portrayal of Long John Silver popularised the use of a kind of Bristolian... Robert yeah, Robert yeah. Newton, Bristolian accent as a pirate accent. Sure, yeah. Nautical but nice. <laughs> As, as opposed to the Mummerset accent you deployed at the at the top. I Reece. don't know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Joseph Longfoot, Terence Damani. He's good, isn't he? He's, there's a real undercurrent there. He is good. Or something almost pathetic about him. Yeah, I kind of warm to him. I feel sorry for him. Yeah. It's like this kind of hollow man trapped in his paranoia. Yeah. I'm not quite convinced that he needed to give up the dead man's key. <laughs> To the doctor. I mean, he's obviously paranoid. He's obviously worried about uh, Pike and Co. But I don't really understand his motivation for giving up. If you should come this way and find me gone, remember these words. Mm. This is Dead Man's Secret Key. Was he telling everyone <laughs> who went by? <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, it's very enjoyable. It's a shame he's not in it for a bit longer. Mm. We have his demise, of course, in the sense clips, which we'll get to mm. uh, later. It is one of several things that don't really make sense plot-wise. You know, there's absolutely no reason for him to foresee his own death and pass on that valuable information to, <laughs> yeah. to three strangers. There's also the sort of vague moral obligation to save the unnamed village. <laughs> in, in episode three, they're all together and they're reunited and they can just leave. Yeah. They can just go. And that's explained away by, as I mentioned, the moral obligation to save the village. And I don't know what the village is called, and I don't know what the obligation is, and I don't know what happened to not changing history. Absolutely spot on. And that, that's another contrivance that the story requires to give the doctor mm. a raison d'etre and enables him to get out of there alive, doesn't it? So, yeah, but you're not supposed to notice that. There's just a village. <laughs> well, surely he gives him the clue because... The doctor fixed his finger. He's been suffering <laughs> well, with that finger for years. Indeed. However, moving on, we'll get to a problem with George A. Cooper playing Cherub. But I have to say, I do find it bloody distracting that he was the caretaker, Mr. Griffiths, <laughs> when I was growing up. And that's all I can see. I'm, uh, at the moment, I'm suffering from seeing George A. Cooper everywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm on a public eye rewatch. He's in uh, that. Okay. I'm on a Zed Cars kick. He's He was in an episode I've just watched with a full head of hair. And then last week I watched A Night to Remember, uh, the brilliant 1950s mm. Titanic film. Oh, is he in that? And he turns up in that. Yeah. He's in loads, isn't he? So, yeah, I do enjoy it. And I think it's a really good performance. And he's actually a really good actor. Mm. He's slightly different in everything he does. He doesn't turn up playing the same person each time. Uh, there are some great telesnaps of him. Yeah. Not just telly snaps, he's in those surviving clips, and he, yeah. I think he features quite heavily in that eight mil footage mm. as well. That was, that was shot Getting on location. His feet scrubbed, <laughs> looking through bushes. That's him. <laughs> it's a it's... and and you get to see how how unimpressive the shrubbery is that he's hiding <laughs> behind as well. <laughs> <laughs> the magic of television that would have looked a lot yeah, better. Yeah. It's a great character performance, isn't it? 
yeah, he's slimy and he's pretty pretty frightening. You know, yeah, for kids indeed. watching that, he would have been a, a fantastic villain. Yeah, sure. But there is a there is a plot problem with him. The only reason he has to kidnap the doctor to get the secret off him is because he'd chosen to kill the guy who knew the secret. Why didn't he just <laughs> torture the guy who knew the secret? Job done. <laughs> Tim, I have the answer to this as well. So, Go on. I don't know how well this would have come across in the direction, and we have that clip, and I don't think it's clear there, but in the stage direction, so what the script writers had intended was that Longfoot, when he turns and runs away, he is reaching for his blunderbuss, which is hanging on the wall. Oh, Reese, you're good. So that's why Cherub kills him. Self-defence. Ah, that's good, Reese. Well done. Another mystery solved. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, apologies, Brian Hales. Uh, Apologies. Honestly. Uh, The the motivation is there. And also, Brian Hales was bashing out these scripts one a week. They were turned around in no time. He only had two weeks' notice, didn't he, or something, to deliver it all? Done in short order, yeah. The Revenue Man, Josiah Blake, John Ringham. John Ringham. (laughs) <laughs> also known for the Aztecs and and Colony in Space. Is it just me, or is he acting in a different thing <laughs> to everybody else? <laughs> Rich has pointed out he's a bit Shakespearean <laughs> when he starts off. He's very enunciated, isn't he, in his, in his performance. He's a bit stagey, but enjoyable yeah. for it. I, I don't mind him. He spends a lot of time riding back and forth and going getting militia yeah. and, and things like that. A lot of his kind of heroism is off screen or just conveyed by him riding a horse <laughs> or indeed falling off a horse which is what yeah. happens in one of the scenes. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird kind of... He's, I do wonder about the casting, whether it should have been a slightly more heroic kind of looking actor. Um, yeah. And he is sort of tagged in. He's just the kind of solution to the problem of all the pirates. Yeah, it's another contrived yeah. plot it's element. Nice, it's it? nice to see John Ringham. Uh, it is. Although you say he could look more like the hero, he looks a bit like a hobbit in some of the telesnaps, I think, with his big ears and his weird haircut. Topically, John Ringham was in my favourite advert of the 1980s, which is Terry's Chocolate Orange. And he ends up being Indiana Jones and going through uh, an Indiana Jones type temple to try and get to his chocolate orange at the end. That's amazing. Uh, I say topically because there's a new Indiana Jones film. Uh, Captain Pike, Michael Godfrey. I don't know a lot about Michael Godfrey, and he doesn't seem to have many prominent roles, but lots of small ones in television. He died very young in in 77, but he's great. Mm. He looks the part. He sounds the part. Yeah, I I haven't seen him. I haven't seen him in anything else. No, I seem to recall he's in a Callan, but I can't place it. I I'm not even sure if it's an existing Callan. But yeah, it seems strange because he has somewhat of a star quality for me. Mm. You know, good looks. Yeah. Um, the camera seems to like him a lot and he sounds fine. Yeah, I think he's too suave and too kind of dashing for what the script had in mind. Because the script directions, uh, they describe Pike... 
as having a, a heavy, growling voice. He's a huge man with a right. vast black beard, dressed foppishly with rings on his hand, well-curled wig, but his manner is bold and vulgar. So I think they intended a more sort of beardy, piratey pirate than his casting. But I don't think it's bad casting. I think he's great. Mm. But yeah. he, he kind of carries off the sort of gentlemanliness too easily and too well. So I think what was intended was more him, the character being very at odds with um, his kind of pretense. Yeah, but he plays to that gentlemanliness mm. because Hartnell, you know, he plays to his ego, mm. doesn't he? And so he, he he becomes a bit more erudite in that scene and, yeah. and becomes more piratey as required. But he, he has, yeah, he has to be tough, doesn't he? When needed, and there's that lovely moment in episode four where he sort of stands up to Cherub and there's that slight moment between them that he sort of yeah wins wins out and i and i think he has got to sort of have a have a foot in both camps really he's got to be this sort of erudite captain and gentleman um and he's also got to be a, a, an outlaw yeah. hard man and i think he, i think he's very well cast i do i do i think he i think he's great okay tom mike mike more on. Well, funny you should say that. My only note is a bit of an annoying thicko wouldn't mind playing him at cards. <laughs> I feel that the kind of the way they play the characters play a trick on him to escape is it almost comes across as mean spirited, and he's just he's stupid because he's from the past. But also he's he's a bit whiny and yeah. mocking, and he's you know you don't warm to his character, so you don't mind too much. And who put Tom in charge of guarding anyone? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, he, they do bring in that superstition theme pretty much, mm. and as a coda to that, you know, the less Hartnell's less line before they depart for the the South Pole is about that superstition. Sometimes superstition is correct, or or, or whatever he says. But yeah, it's, a, it's laid on a bit thick, isn't it? I think that voodoo doll scene is really there just to show Ben and Polly working together and, and that chemistry that they've got. And yeah, Tom's just sort of a passenger, isn't it? Really, there's a great shot in the camera script during that scene so one camera goes to a close-up on tom it says as his eyes go from side to side zoom in on tom and then the shot from another camera is superimposed onto that of a close-up of the doll swinging so you get this visual representation of him feeling that he is becoming hypnotized oh nice oh that's lovely that's almost like the the trout yeah. to the Cyberman crossfade. Yeah. That's I nice. think Mike Lucas, aside from Annika Wills, is the only surviving credited cast member. Gosh. He was a founder member of the Micron Theatre Company, which tours the UK on a canal boat. And nice. in the late 70s, early 80s, Mark Strickson was a member of that theatre group. Oh, cool. During which time he performed on a musical album released by the theatre company. And that's very interesting listening. That's the musical cue you could uh, pop an interlude. <laughs> it's Mark Strickson oh, singing. <laughs> Moving on. Paul Whitson Jones, the squire, also famously in The Mutants. Going back to what we talked about earlier, Jamaica Inn, he's not doing a vocal impression of Charles Lawton, but again, he's the grotesque dandy. He's enormous. He's got this garish long wig. 
I think I detected a little bit of a, uh, a occasional affected speech, especially when he turns up, similar to Charles Lawton. Uh. But he quickly forgets that if he <laughs> is doing that. Yeah, Paul Whitson Jones. What do we think? I feel like there's not much to say because he's absolutely the right actor to cast in that part. That's a hundred percent his uh, his bag, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, he's very good. It's just another performance that I imagine would just leap off the screen if we were able to see it. Um, completely committed to it, as as almost all of the the main cast are. Yeah. It's just such a shame it's <laughs> it's missing because I I feel like everyone gives it mm. gives at least a seven and a half out of ten. Yeah, I mean, he, 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 Paul Whitson Jones was in a lot of TV, mm. and you just kind of feel it's it's meat and drink to him, don't you? Sadly, another member of the cast who didn't live very long. Uh, he was dead by mid to late 70s. Mm, not um, long after the mutants, Pensited. I Yeah. We should mention him because he's in it. He's in... The, we have moving footage of him on location. Uh, Derek Ware, the Spaniard, <laughs> who famously went into it thinking it was a speaking part and then found out he didn't have any lines or he was mute. Uh, looks rather swarthy on the um, on the 8mm footage, mm-hmm. doesn't he? <laughs> but yeah, he's there. He's in a couple of telesnaps. Yeah. It's a nice publicity photo of yeah. him, isn't there, on the beach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He apparently had an unfortunate incident doubling as Blake on horseback, where he was supposed to ride off over the crest of a hill, and he fell off into a pile of manure. And he was again injured during the studio recording when uh, a mattress that he had planned to fall onto was unexpectedly not there when they were recording, oh. and so he <laughs> falls dead onto the studio floor, supposedly, and then uh, breaks his arm or his fingers or something, and then has to go straight into another job where he's a sword fight arranger on a, another show. They're hard bastards, yeah. these stuntmen. <laughs> that is almost typically the fast show stuntman. I think Havoc provided ten uh, stuntmen as well. Uh, for that final yeah, battle, this is the first action by Havoc. Yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah, there, there's uh, I think there's a there's a mention in, in, in a Doctor Who magazine from I think it was the first appearance of Terry Terry Walsh, Walsh. as well. Yeah, that you know um, they needed so many fighters for that big battle between the militia and the pirates that if anyone was was sort of killed, they would sort of hobble behind a, a tombstone get out of shot swap their wig <laughs> put a different put a different hat on and uh, rejoin the battle which i thought I, was quite fun. I reckon i'm afraid that that's one of those classic anecdotes that isn't actually true there were well <laughs> oh, no. it sounds too good to be true it was in doesn't Doctor it? Who magazine. Um, there were 26 extras involved in the fighting so i think with that many what? people not all stuntmen it's about half and half but with that many, I think they were, they wouldn't have needed that kind of ingenuity. There was also... Maybe Terry Walsh was just really up for it. <laughs> going above and beyond, yeah. Um, Buddy Windrush was there, a.k.a. Brian Mosley. Alf Roberts to Corey fans. Our favourite Malfa. And also um, Fred Windrush, of whom I have no idea who that is. It sounds like a, a pseudonym but I can't find any information. So, Toby Haydock, if you're listening, please enlighten us. I wondered if it might be Derek Martin, because he's not credit, not otherwise credited, but claimed to be involved. Jack Bly is listed as Gaptooth. He turns up in episode four, 
uh, pretty much. I don't know if he's in earlier ones, but he gets a bit to do in that. Mm. He's visibly the old man <laughs> on the <laughs> in the cast. Well, yeah, I mean, he's often cited as the earliest born person to appear mm. in Doctor Who. Some confusion over his exact date of birth, but uh, Simon Guerrier again came to the rescue, tracked down and even paid <laughs> for a copy of Mr. Bly's birth certificate. That's dedication. It, it is dedication. <laughs> and it, it was all it was all in the name of his book, Universal Records, which I thoroughly recommend and you should all go and buy. By doing that incredible bit of research, he was able to prove that Jack Bly was in fact born on the 31st December 1889. Gosh. So is he the <laughs> oldest person ever to appear in Doctor Who? The earliest born person ever to appear in Doctor Who, Rich? He's marginally older than Bart Allison, who was born on the 1st of December 1890. He played Maximus Petulian in the Romans. There are a handful of older extras and stand-ins. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, May Warden, who famously played the aged Sarah Kingdon in Dalek. Oh, Boston. yeah. Then there's Bert Sims, who played the uncredited corpse of a newspaper seller in The Web oh. of Fear. Um, and I have not gone to the extent of uh, Simon Gary and looked up birth certificates <laughs> here. So this is all from Google. It could be incorrect. But he was born on the 29th of October, 1884, wow. which... Um, it's impressive. However, it gets better. Lionel Gadston was born on August the 14th, 1879. He's an uncredited Aztec and he lived to the age of 86 and actually passed away three days after the Myth Makers episode four was broadcast. It was that good. He died happy. <laughs> Nothing's going to get better. My work is done. As I say, I'm, I'm sure someone's going to come back and correct me on, on half 1879. But yeah, um, 1879, Gosh. an uncredited Aztec. So yes, there are earlier born people. But I think in terms of someone who had a, a, a speaking role, as far as I can ascertain, Jack Bly as Gaptooth is nice. the correct answer. Awesome. And then last but definitely not least, Elroy Josephs as Jamaica. So I've looked up a little bit about Elroy Josephs. And so he was a Jamaican actor, but an extremely accomplished dancer. And he became the first black dance teacher at a British university. I know you have thoughts on Jamaica. I find he's doing a bit of a strange pirate accent combined with a Jamaican accent. And it sounds a bit strained and a bit affected to me. But thoughts? Problematic, (laughs) I would say. Some problematic writing going on there. It is, in in my opinion, a a bit of a racist caricature of a of a person. Um, And it, yeah, it's a shame. It's interesting, perhaps, to contrast it with Earl Cameron in in Tenth Planet. Elroy Josephs is the first black spoken part, I think. Yes, I think one of the newsreaders in the War Machines was black but it's uh only his voice right and there's a black actor in dalek's master plan and i don't know whether he oh sam any... mansory he's an extra so he's bayus yeah so he might make a noise in yeah. episode 11 this is the first credited proper mm. part as it were yeah and you was uh, and you were saying that the jamaican accent reese errol joseph was from jamaica um mm. but i think he's certainly putting on and really exaggerating, uh, especially in episode three, an accent and leaning into the caricature uh, because that's not that's certainly not his natural speaking voice, or at least he he can affect a much sort of smoother, uh, more gentle vocal tone, uh, which I've seen in other parts that he played. 
I find it an uncomfortable performance and character to watch because, yeah, to me it feels like he is sort of leaning into the kind of caricature aspect of the character and that I feel uncomfortable seeing that. And he's the character has sort of no positive traits at all, nothing redeeming about him. He's he's presented as subservient, he's cowardly, cruel, unintelligent, gullible and aggressive. And I think, yeah, it's a shame that, you know, so soon before such a great um, role as Earl Cameron's, we have an actor playing this kind of part. Sure. Yeah, based yeah. based on the um, the camera scripts, the character was originally named Crow, which would have been even more unfortunate mm. in the context of um, the Jim Crow laws in America, which um, were named after a, a racist caricature of African Americans and their culture. But yeah. I suppose then changing the name from Crow to Jamaica, uh, aware of that kind of connotation or not, they then they name him, defining him by his race. Shall we review it? Shall we share our thoughts? <laughs> because I think we've been pretty ambiguous about it, to be honest. Mm. We've all had pros and cons and pluses and minuses. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. I'll be brave. Um, I love it. I I really do love it. It's not. It's one that's going to be so easily overlooked. But I find the missing episodes of Doctor Who absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah. We've got enough glimpses of of this. We've got the the wonderful sensor clips to get an idea of how it looked. We've got the tele snaps. We've got uh, some publicity photos, and um, thankfully we have wonderful audio as well. And I think when you put all those things together, you can really get a sense of a production. I would have preferred it with music. I think that would just heighten it um, but I think we've got you know a fairly middling story here that's elevated by uh, some great direction some actors giving some brilliant performances um, and some really fantastic location work and sets so I, I love the smugglers I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of it I'd absolutely love to to see even one episode of it come back would be a joy hey <laughs> Uh, Reese, do you want to flip a coin? Um, Are you going to be positive or negative? Broadly positive. Not not love, love, but positive. I'll go next then. You can go last. Yeah. Because I always go last. I'm bored of going last. <laughs> I'll go next then. Um, well, let's get the bad out of the way for me. Episode four is really action heavy <laughs> and crowded and needs to be seen to assess properly, I think, in terms of how well the direction and execution of all that action stands up. It's a bit noisy. But that's my only criticism, really, apart from, you know, the odd nitpick. <laughs> I think Ben and Polly are brilliant. They're a breath of fresh air. The location stuff, including Ben and Polly on the beach at the start and the mm. Doctor in the background, uh, look great. I've talked about the other shots that look great. The design looks great. I enjoy the plot. I think it's humorous. I think it's a great kids' TV adventure story. I think episode one, especially, is perfect. <laughs> I think episode ones are always good, but I, I, I think it's it, it's really good, and the rest of it does 
what it needs to do um moving the chess pieces around to get to that conclusion it's pirates versus smugglers why not i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed revisiting it i can see why it falls off people's radar but i think again with a little bit of patience i think it, it rewards so yeah i i, I enjoyed it race come on ruin the mood it's it's not what i expected it to be i had in my head this idea that it was a kind of frolicking romp and that's what I was expecting going into it when I knew that I was going to be coming onto this podcast I was fully ready to kind of compare it to the famous five and kind of children's adventures that I enjoyed when I was young and there's a real current of brutality within it and some mm. quite oppressive there's quite an oppressive atmosphere particularly in the early episodes and as i've said that kind of clashes with the kind of adventure aspects of it but i found that the more times i've i've listened to it and digged into like the camera scripts looking for you know what they were kind of doing the, all the bits that we can't see i really want to see it i really want to watch it and i think it would be really rewarding to experience with the visuals i don't think mm. it's the greatest story audio only i think it kind of drags a bit in the latter half you know episode three is is a lot of people standing around telling their plans to other people saying spelling out what they're going to do in episode four and then episode four is a lot of indistinct shouting in a crypt but (laughs) depending on how that was staged it could be really engrossing and really enjoyable and it's as we've discussed, the real jewel at the centre of this is the location work. And every time I look at those telesnaps, I just want to see them burst into life. And all these great expansive locations, I think it just would have been something really special. And um, I was reading a, a, an article in Doctor Who magazine in which uh, viewers who watched these missing stories at the time gave their recollections and Dean October said that he he wasn't fully aware of the kind of distinction between sort of filming in a studio and filming outside. But when he watched The Smugglers, he said that he had this sense of fear that Ben and Polly might get lost because of the sweep oh, and right. scale of the locations. And nice. I, that's just a wonderful idea and really sells me on how good the the film work could have been on this and that's that's what makes me want to see it because i want to see all these visual things the script isn't a gem but it's good it's got some lovely period dialogue the actors are really relishing in it and you as you've said rich ben's dialogue really keeps things light and enjoyable yeah i really hope an episode or two or three or four turn up it'd be lovely <laughs> And now we move on to the missing episodes aspects. So, before we get on to what sold where in the time honored tradition, we have some color location footage. Reese, tell us where that came from. So, this footage, which was actually shot on 16mm film, which is why it looks extra nice and lovely, um, was filmed by Donald Truen 
who I think was the owner of the farm, Trithui Farm, at which they were shooting. And his family, or he, uh, kept that film and made it available to us. And thank goodness he did, because it's it's a wonderful um, glimpse into what it was like. And Isn't it? There's a question over whether we have the extra title sequence footage used at the start, as we mentioned, the... Uh, the episode one captions were shown over this extra hell round footage. I think the script oh, yeah. refers yeah. to it as clouds. Mm. Now that wasn't the footage that was specially shot for Doctor Who uh, in 1963. That comes from the original hell round, I suppose, test material. The hell round process was devised by a man named Ben Palmer, and it was used on a show called Tobias and the Angel. I think it was directed by Rudolf Cartier. Mm. And it's from that that this cloud uh, material is taken. Now, I've compared the telesnaps of the title captions, and they don't match the footage that we see in the Doctor Who opening titles. They don't match the further footage, which we see in An Unearthly Child, where the footage is used for a similar effect to represent the TARDIS travelling. And they yeah. also don't appear to match the couple of stills that I've seen of the Tobias and the Angel opening titles, which I think had the title credits superimposed anyway. So this footage yeah. must have come from the original insert reel or extra film footage shot for Tobias and the Angel. Now, there is a lot of title sequence footage held in the BBC archives for... Doctor Who, the Hartnell titles. According to Richard Molesworth's Wiped, there are four spools of 35mm raw footage running to a whopping 68 minutes and 40 seconds. What? That's (laughs) how much material there is. And I think only a a couple of minutes of this has been shown on the DVDs. So I very much hope we'll get it on a nice shiny Blu-ray. But it's unclear whether that would include the Tobias and the Angel footage so if it does then we've got a little bit more of the smugglers if it doesn't then that's a shame where's it gone might it be languishing somewhere in the archives filed under something that's not doctor who and so we haven't found it yet you are a nerd par excellence (laughs) it's really strange isn't it because um they occasionally reuse that footage in the show especially when there's you know time travel is taking place um i, I know there's often um dalek monitors for example that seem to show the howl around mm, yeah. pattern going on it yeah. um that i've always presumed was just lifted directly from um an off-cut of the title sequence just sort of looped that that's not the case here that this is from a completely no different... no definitely not and i think the um the dalek screen footage that was from the doctor who title sequence additional material so that wasn't stuff from the title sequence that was more of the footage shot for doctor who um so that stuff was obviously hanging around and being used so you know if julia smith working on the smugglers has access to it there must have been some reference to where it was you know maybe it was filed under the doctor who series or maybe there were some notes in the production office that they knew we have this footage somewhere uh i don't know i'd like to that's absolutely Absolutely incredible. So it was made for Tobias and the Angels. Tobias and the Angel. 
Um, and that is yeah. missing television? Or? No, that exists. That exists at the BBC. It's always existed. It's often been said that the footage was shot for a programme called Amal and the Night Visitors. I think that's a confusion or an inference or a misremembrance. I think Tobias and the Angel is where it originates. And I know Toby Haydock has done a lot of research mm. into this for his excellent podcast. So check that out if you want the full story. Yeah. I think so. I, th- I think mention of it turned up on Twitter mm. or a screen grab turned yeah. up on Twitter recently. Yeah. It w- I'd love to see that program because it would be really odd having that uh, iconic image from the opening of Doctor Who, that thing which is so ingrained in the origin of the show to us viewers just being mm. used in something else that preceded it. Well, there you go, Russell Minton. If you want to stick 68 minutes of <laughs> HowlRound footage on the Edge of Destruction disc, mm. I know someone who's just volunteered to go through it frame by frame. I'll buy it twice <laughs> if it's on there. <laughs> I hereby pledge. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. The one other thing which we may have somewhere uh, is that in episode two, when... Ben and Polly are in the jail cell and Polly exclaims that there's a rat in the corner. According to the camera script, there was a piece of footage used to show this rat in a dark corner. Uh, And the script says that this piece of footage, film insert, was 15 seconds long, which is quite significant. I imagine they sort of run it and then that allowed for timing of the cutaway to poly cutaway to the footage maybe cut back to it um so there wouldn't have been 15 seconds of a mount a rat on screen but the footage as in how many feet of film inserts specially shot there were for that episode on the p as b transmission log for the episode and that specifies there is 169 feet of 35 millimeter specially shot footage used in that episode which equates to one minute and 48 seconds at 25 frames per second all the other film inserts in this episode when you total them up based on their durations in the camera script and i also checked that they matched the run times in the episode as well total one minute 47 seconds which is about <laughs> one minute 48 seconds so that does not allow any room for this 15 seconds of a rat in the corner. So is this BBC-owned stock footage that might still be somewhere in the film library? Maybe. <laughs> or maybe they didn't use it and that's why it's not on there. I don't know. But Well, have you checked iPlayer? Because last time you checked <laughs> looking for hippos, it was there under your nose this entire time. Get on out, get these to iPlayer. Okay, I'll be right back. <laughs> So yeah, but there's no way we could possibly figure out if we found the right stuff because there's no telesnap of it. There's no paperwork pointing to where it is. But maybe we could find footage of a mouse and tell ourselves that it's right. (laughs) A mouse, a rat. I think in the script it says mouse, but Polly's saying rat. I don't know. That's why I'm confused. (laughs) That's remarkable. So let's talk in the time-honored tradition about overseas sales. <laughs> so the episodes were originally recorded onto videotape and from the videotape they made film copies uh, for distribution overseas. And we know 
by the number of countries that showed these things that there would have been multiple film copies. Now, the very excellent John Preddle, who was on last time, has a website called broadcast.org. That's uh, B-R-O-A-D-W-Cast.org. And it's a brilliant site with all sorts of research and theory how these film prints moved around and we'll give a summary here and stop off at some points of interest. So we know that The Smugglers was broadcast in Australia in May 67, in Barbados in June 68, in Zambia in uh, October 68, New Zealand July 69, Sierra Leone September 1970, and Singapore in 72. And John has researched and put together a solution to the number of prints that might have been, and the prints were bicycled from country to country to save having to send out a print to um, each country that wanted to show it. So we'll work through those, and then uh, we may stop off at some destinations of interest. So as ever, first out of the blocks is Australia which gets its own set of prints, uh, which ended up being shown in May 67. Well, thank goodness for the sensibilities of the Australian government censors, because mm -hmm. it's down to them that we have those tantalising pieces of footage uh, from three of the four episodes of The Smugglers. And, and thank goodness indeed, because they really make... I don't like... I'm going to confess here. I don't like animations. And I don't even like uh, recons. And all I need is a second or two <laughs> of moving footage. And I feel immersed in it. And I feel like my brain can do the rest. Yeah, it's so valuable just being able to see a little bit and picture um, how these characters moved and how the director is working their cameras, how they're cutting... And we're really fortunate that we do have footage for a lot of programmes. And The Smugglers is a particularly rich example because they're quite lengthy clips, aren't they? We've got the great confrontation between Cherub and Longfoot in the church mm. from episode one. Uh, from episode three, we've got the murder of Jamaica, and that's in two separate parts. So they, we, yeah. have, um, we have Pike saying, fare thee well, Jamaica. And then the next cut is where he is stabbed with the pike. I think we don't quite realise, because of the disjointed nature of these sensor clips and the way they're presented, but that footage of Pike killing Jamaica and then the cut to him wiping the blood off his pike, that's as it was broadcast and as it was scripted to be shot. That sudden jump cut was intentional. That's not a result of it being two pieces censored and stuck together which is it's very unusual wait what so there's a lengthy black screen yes that's in there that's how it was scripted really it feels to me when i'm watching it that, that there's you know half a second of black yeah between the two bits yeah that is the camera defocusing and and pike gets really close to the camera and you get a bit of um it looks like microphony uh those lines sort of running along the screen uh, but in the camera script it said Jamaica back past cam uh, as Pike advances defocus 
and then there's a cut and a recording break, and then they resume on the shot ah. of Pike's Pike and Handkerchief. Mm. And the stage directions, as written in the script, suggest something similar to that, that Pike does l- lean towards the camera and fill the frame, but I don't think the sudden jump was quite what was envisaged. But it, the recording break does allow them to put the blood onto his pike. Sure, yeah. I will just add that Pike's weapon, being a pike, does make for some confusing camera directions. Uh, the opening to, to episode two, it says, Shot one, close up Pike's pike, pan up Pike's arm to close up Pike. <laughs> I didn't say when we were reviewing it, but I, I kind of worry what that would look like because that pike is there for a long time. Yeah. While the, while the episode two title and by brian hales is over there and that feels a little bit amateurish to me yeah it, but, it does look as though it's kind of being held by someone's hand underneath doesn't it <laughs> yeah yeah well all of the cliffhanger reprises are close-ups of a weapon aren't they the pike yeah the gun yeah. and the dagger out of cooper's back in episode four and of course we also have cooper being shot at the end of episode three that we almost get that full cliffhanger, which is quite nice, quite neat. Uh, it's a nice way to end a reconstruction. A sudden burst of moving footage and then then the roller captions. And, and Hartnell doing something dramatic. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they are wonderful clips, aren't they? I you, you mentioned they were quite lengthy. And, you know, I think whenever I think of the stuff that we have surviving from missing episodes, mm. I naturally think of sort of, you know, that lovely Blue Peter stuff from Temple Planet 4 or the long clip from Galaxy 4 and all the various things mm. that have landed from Master Plan. But we get a good 23 seconds of episode one, 21 seconds from episode three and a brief clip from episode four. So if you think about it, episodes one and three are only, they're only 99% missing. <laughs> And then the final sensor clip is Cherub being run through by Pike's sword. Indeed, not his pike. <laughs> not Pike's pike this time. Uh, yeah, sure. And um, on the subject of that one specifically, prepare to be shocked, guys. There is some of the sensor footage which has never been officially released. Just a little bit. It's been 99% released. But there is, I believe for that clip, a single frame of footage which wasn't on the DVD. Now, hold on. It's a little bit better than that because this frame is the beginning of the next shot. Oh. And so it's essentially like a new telesnap. It's like getting a new telesnap back. But obviously in the presentation on the DVD, it can be jarring to see just you know a flash frame and so i think they were excluded for that reason but this is also the case for some other of the sensor clips so the frame from this clip shows cherub uh, in the center of shot with the angel statue behind him and that's quite a nice shot and if you're wondering how i know about this don't tell anyone but the full australian sensor clip reel has been posted on the internet in VHS quality but it would be lovely to have 
every frame of this footage in glorious, cleaned-up high definition because we are we really on a scrap hunting exercise here. You know, <laughs> I want every last bit of this that I can get. So we've got that frame. There are from the. So I'll do these in reverse order when it comes to the smugglers. So the clip of Cherub getting run through with Pike's Pike uh, has one extra frame of Cherub lying there, looks the same. And then we have one frame of a dirty cut. Now you might ask what a dirty cut is, and don't worry, I'm going to fill you in straight away. A dirty cut... (laughs) Well, in order to explain a dirty cut, we must first hark back to what was discussed in some of the earlier episodes of this podcast, which is the stored field film recording process. So a dirty cut is where one field from one shot before a cut and one field of the shot after a cut are blended together on the frame of the film recording. So it's almost like it's the middle of a crossfade, essentially. And it's because of the stored field recording process that you get these mini one-frame crossfades. So we've got one dirty cut frame at the end of the clip of Jamaica being butchered. And then, so we get a sort of faded glimpse of what the next shot was, and it looks like it's um, it's of the pirate ship location filming. Mm. Then we also have, as a bonus, a half frame, which appears to be the frame was snipped halfway through rather than cleaning at the end. So we've got a half frame of this shot of the boat on location, and we've got a dirty cut frame where you have the full frame, but it's half cross-faded with Jamaica lying dead on the floor. <laughs> okay. I would I would honestly buy a Blu-ray release for an additional frame and two halves. That sounds I'm, absolutely I'm, fascinating because I would probably spend weeks trying to recreate <laughs> the second half of that frame. Exactly. And animating it. Um, but yeah, wow. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, not um, worth if that's not worth the price of a Blu-ray release. I'm not sure. One of the telesnaps has a, fa- a crossfade between shots on, doesn't it? Yeah, it's frustrating, one. isn't it? Uh, yeah, you've got Polly being gagged and and all being tied up by Cherub, and then a fade into the, the the graveyard or the crypt. Yeah, AI is going to deprive a lot of people of jobs, but hopefully it will be able to unpick those telesnaps <laughs> for us. Sure. And there's also one additional frame at the end of the clip of Pike saying, fare thee well, Jamaica. It's not of a new shot, but it just got trimmed off for some reason. Oh, and there's one at the start as well. And from the first clip of Cherub and Longfoot, there is one additional frame at the start and an additional half frame at the end, but neither shows new material. And of course, we have the sensor clips because the brilliant Damien Shanahan unearth them in the 1990s so australia then sent back their prints in june 75 and in terms of the hope of something else turning up we know that episodes such as airlock and the underwater menace episode two are from that 75 return and the smugglers is also on the list of episodes returned so there's every chance that an episode could turn up in the in the UK in the hands of a collector 
when I say every chance, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's now 12 years since Terry Burnett's two were unearthed. But who knows what will happen. Worth worth mentioning as well, just for completion, that Australia may well have used more than one set of prints, but we will cover that in a forthcoming at some point Australia special because Australia is a very complicated beast and I've been promising this Australia special a couple of times so that's Australia the second set of prints that is theorized is the set that went to Barbados for broadcast in June 68 they then sent their prints on to Zambia for October 68 and then finally that print and that set of prints ended up in anyone is it Sierra Leone it's Sierra Leone now according to Philip Morris Sierra Leone sent back their prints to London in 1974 which may well be the case but Listeners to the podcast will have heard me on numerous occasions detail the story, the mystery of Sierra Leone, which I'm not going to go through here. I refuse. <laughs> but if you go back and listen to The Savages, The Myth Makers, The Celestial Toy Maker, The Massacre, The Massacre, possibly Galaxy 4, it is gone into and repeated there. So um, I'm tempted to ask questions of uh, Rich and Reese, but I'm not going to. We're going to leave Sierra Leone behind and never mention it again. (laughs) (laughs) You've done it. You've made it. So we're going to leave Sierra Leone behind. Worth perhaps mentioning that Barbados, Zambia and Sierra Leone all had association and were clients of anyone? T-I-E. Television International Enterprises. Uh, Again, go back and listen to previous episodes to find out (laughs) what that is all about. So that's the second potential print dealt with. And then there's a third set of prints. So New Zealand once again gets sent its own set of prints and they broadcast in July 69. Reese, have you been looking at the censors in New Zealand? Yeah, it's it's sometimes forgotten, including by myself, that the New Zealand censors uh, also made extensive cuts, perhaps more extensive cuts to the episodes, mm. uh, but unfortunately less of that material has been discovered. Uh, Graham Howard... In New Zealand found the clips that we do have from the Web of Fear and the Wheel in Space, but I don't think those were found in the same way as the Australian sensor clips where those had been deliberately retained. The New Zealand sensor footage was a a kind of lucky find of these two episodes, but there were a lot more cuts made that we don't have, and it's a real pity because they cut a lot of material. Uh, In episode one... They cut one minute and 46 seconds of the scene between Longfoot and Cherub. uh, And the note was simply reduced threat to Joseph with knife. Episode two, they cut out 43 seconds. uh, Delete Cherub's physical and verbal threats with knife. Delete Captain's remarks. I'll slit your gizzard. Episode three, 
they did less than the Australian censors. All they had for episode three was delete view of Cherub holding knife across Tom's throat. Heaven forbid we see violence towards a white character. Yeah, yeah. they had no problem strange, with Jamaica being slain. And episode four, uh, 20 seconds removed, delete views of Captain thrusting and withdrawing sword from Cherub's body. So we've got minutes of footage. Yeah excised from the New Zealand copy. Yeah, about three minutes. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Graham Howard because he's one of the great unsung heroes, isn't mm. he, of Missing Episodes Recovery in that he found the sensor clips from Wheel in Space and Web of Fear on a, on a reel with a collector, I think. Ah, uh, yes. But he also, he also unearthed the, the shipping logs from NZBC from which... John Preddle and others have extrapolated pretty much a good idea of how the entire world operated just from having one sort of black and red or whatever it is with with accurate data in it. And then the other thing Graham Howard did, of course, was find the couple of film cans in the NZBC film store, mm. uh, which were empty or had, had something else in there. Uh, was it Moonbase Episode 3? and assassin at peking it was indeed uh, yeah so i i don't know if graham howard listens to this or any of our new zealand listeners can contact graham but i'd love to interview him about all that stuff because he is one of the great unsung heroes of the missing episode scene team new zealand are amazing as john demonstrated in the last episode do, do you want me to upset you tim yeah the new zealand no Yes. The New Zealand censors removed five minutes of footage from the Myth Makers. Well, they can keep their copy. <laughs> five minutes? Five minutes. Two and a half minutes from... Well, two minutes, 43 seconds from episode four. Wow. Blimey. Well, get looking. Team New Zealand, get looking. Yeah, five minutes. Gosh, imagine getting that back. Yeah. Hey ho! Uh, so, so because of the aforementioned film traffic log, we know that New Zealand sent their film prints of the serial on to Singapore uh, in January 1972, and and that's the three sets of prints accounted for uh, as they were bicycled around the world. Mm -hmm. So, Tim, do we know what happened with the Singapore prints? Well, <laughs> as uh, as we finish talking about Sierra Leone, we might start thinking about uh, Singapore a little bit. Richard Molesworth, author of Wiped, wrote to Singapore in the 1990s and said, you showed all of these stories, have you got any? And they said, no, we haven't. And if you look at the broadcast history in Singapore as as worked out by John Preddle, you see that they played them in a really wacky order, uh, which I will describe briefly, but get to broadcast and look on Singapore. And what you will see is that they showed the Hartnells, most of the Hartnells, up to the Time Meddler, and then they embarked on showing the Troughton run from the Highlanders all the way through to the War Games. And then they showed the first three Pertwees. After that, <laughs> they went back to the Savages, through to Power of the Daleks. And then, as you do, after that, they went back to 
Galaxy 4 <laughs> and went through to the gunfighters. <laughs> now, why this becomes of interest, I'm not going to get into in this episode, but there's an interesting conversation to be had about the events and rumours of 2013, which we will st- which we'll go to in depth in The Power of the Daleks. But suffice to say, the very excellent John Preddle spoke at length about how cereals were sold and shipped to Africa. When you listen to Philip Morris speak, he tells a different story and, and talks of the possibility of things being thrown in crates. So we're going to explore that and agree that John Preddle was right. But <laughs> that's a discussion to be had another time. Singapore don't have anything there. Richard Molesworth wrote, and according to the Missing Episodes Forum, when the search was being reported on, it was actually checked twice to see if they had anything. But where did those prints go? We don't know. They were shipped out, either back to London, most probably in junks, but there is this lingering 5% doubt that they went elsewhere. So we've got that to look forward to. Well, that concludes our look at The Smugglers. If you've enjoyed this, please do find the time to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Five-star written reviews make more of an impact than listens in terms of the dreaded algorithm, and that'll help people to find us. Our executive producer is the very same Rich Tipple who's appeared this evening. Thanks for the support, Rich. It means a lot. Also, thanks to the brilliant editor and artist for hire who's provided the title graphic. Check out her brilliant Check out her brilliant Doctor Who art at bgaridoart.weebly.com. Thanks, B. If you'd like to help us cover our costs and keep me in custard creams, head to www.patreon.com slash missingepisodes, where you get early access, the patrons have had this for a month, and some other treats. Our mighty Kublai Khan patrons take part in a monthly Missing Episodes live chat. Speaking of whom, thanks to all our patrons, but especially Andy Kitching, Anthony Carroll, Anthony Weiner, Bedwia Gulledge, Chris Phone, David Matthewman, Dean Poole, Dietz Easterwood, Gary Gillat, Harry Townsend, Jack Sharp, Jess Jerkovic, Jim Trenowden, Jonathan Molyneux, Matthew, Paul Cook, Ray Badrick, Sarah Irving, Simon Exton, Simon Whitehead, Sinead Morse, Stephen Moffat, not that one, but no less wonderful for that. And Tim, ah, ding-a-ding-ding-ding-ding. Guys, all of your support make this worthwhile. Thank you so much. If Patreon isn't for you, you can always tip at ko-fi.com slash missingeps. And you can check out our YouTube channel. We have a Facebook page. And I'm on Twitter at Doctor Who Podcasters. And that's with a DR. Come and say hello. Anyway, Rich Tipple. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope you enjoyed it. Loved it. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. And Reese, amazing once again. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Always a pleasure. And hopefully you'll come back again. If you'll have me. Well, we'll think about it. When are you doing the Space Pirates? In five years' time. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Yo, ho, ho.
you know what I noticed in uh, watching The Underwater Menace in preparation for this? Unusual choice, I know. In one scene where um, Troughton and Zaroff are discussing his plan and uh, Troughton's twisted the dial on that uh, big drainy water thing. Yeah. There's a bit where the sound was weird and I, I thought it was an abrupt edit. And I looked a bit closer and Troughton's line has been dubbed because Troughton's line as scripted is even supposing you could drill to the depth of 100 miles Troughton actually said during the take 100 feet and they've dubbed over his line in post he's recorded his dialogue again and that's why there's like a sound change amazing I'm going to tweet about that soon that's going to be an easter egg Anything else on production values or production or design or writing um, or anything before we move on? We could talk about the boat. That might be a good oh, one to cover. Yeah, Reese, talk about the boat. I love the boat. <laughs> introduce the boat. Can someone else introduce the boat? Uh, back to design. Uh, oh, I don't know how to... We'll just say before we move on, let's talk about the boat. Let's talk about <laughs> okay, yeah. the, the black pig, the the pink albatross, the the black albatross. What's he called? Black albatross. There you go. Yeah. Before we move on, can we talk about the boat? I was hoping you'd talk about the boat, Reese. <laughs> <laughs> Reese just winked. Uh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Hold on. Let me get my boat notes out. 